Welcome to Making and Breaking Social Policy, a podcast about social issues and policy and what it all means for social and community practice. My name is Ben Lohmeyer and I'm a lecturer here at Flinders University and my special guest for today is also a lecturer here at Flinders University, Dr. Al-Hassan Abdullah. His research focuses on child neglect and abuse, family violence, child protection mechanisms, both statutory and community-based, and culture in child protection. Al-Hassan has carried out cross-cultural research in Ghana, Nepal, Hong Kong, Korea, and China. And his approach to research and scholarship brings theoretical rigor to the study of child maltreatment and family violence and adopts a cultural lens to investigate Indigenous community protective measures against child maltreatment. His value commitments theory, part of his PhD thesis, highlights how cultural norms and values on parenting regulate the efficacy of protective actions by community members in observed maltreatment cases. His co-authored general theory of polyvictimization generates insights into the unique subjective experiences when forms of maltreatment co-occur. We recognise that Flinders Social Work operates primarily on the traditional lands and waters of the Ghana people, pay respect to elders past, present and emerging, acknowledge their sovereignty, was never ceded and their continued responsibility to care for country. Al Hassan, thank you so much for joining me for a chat today about child protection and yeah. the lessons <laughs> you've got to teach us uh, that we've learned yeah. from, from Ghana and I'm thinking a little bit about how that can perhaps translate across mm-hmm. to Australia. Uh, but yeah. your your experience is broader than just Ghana. It's like a whole range of international. <laughs> you're basically an international super spy going around the world. Uh, so tell us a bit about that. How did how did you end up here in Australia? What's your background in research and practice? Give us a bit of a rundown. Okay, thank you for the opportunity. And um, yes, yeah, so uh, I mean, after high school, decided to do social work, and I enrolled in a Bachelor of Social Work honors program. So it's weird in Ghana you can enroll in an honest program direct without yeah sort of changing along the way. So you have an honest program direct. And that's what I did. So honest program from year one to year four. And then that also gave me the opportunity to sort of learn more about research and also to have the practice experience as well by doing field work and other stuff. Yeah, so after school, I had the opportunity to serve as a teaching assistant within the school. And then part of my responsibility is to teach and do research as well. So it's teaching a research assistant. So I did that for one year and I taught, I tutored on topics in child welfare, research methods, social policy, and women's studies. Yes, so gender women studies. Yeah. So those were the topics I tutored on. And then after that, I also served as a research assistant fully for one year. And that also gave me another opportunity to extend my research because I did my thesis in child welfare focusing on child neglect. And then I had the opportunity to do the research assistant work. And that also gave me the platform to sort of learn a bit more and also to get opportunity to get some publications as well. So that was it. And then, but then whilst I was doing that, I was doing private practice. So one day I would go to the field and then to practice with a child protection agency. So I had the opportunity to get practice teaching research at the same time, which was good. Yeah, which was good because I could sort of change and then know how things are working in practice and how things are working in the class and how things are working within the research field. 
So after two years, I had the opportunity to do my PhD at the University of Hong Kong in social work as well. Yeah. So I was in Hong Kong for two years. It was a bit crazy because I had to do um, around eight to nine topics in the first year. Yeah. Yeah. So, that was, so the coursework component was a bit stronger. But then it was good. Yeah, okay. I used that opportunity to learn a bit more of statistics, which was one of my primary objectives of doing the PhD. So I had the opportunity to do statistics and advanced statistics. Yes. And then along the way, my thesis tilted a bit and I wanted to develop a theory. And we identified one sort of leader within the field, within social theory in the US. And his name is Mark Gold, Professor Mark Gold. So I contacted him and said, okay, I'm doing this. My supervisor and I, we are a bit of, we have gotten us to a stage where we need extra help to know the direction we want to take. Can you take me on as a visiting scholar? And he said, oh, of course. And then he arranged that and I went to the US to work with him. And that was probably one of my best moments within the PhD. It gave me a big opportunity to learn social theory and also to sort of know how to formulate and develop new theories. It's a big task. <laughs> I wouldn't advise for maybe at the bachelor's level. No, yeah, it's a big task. Yeah. So while I was there, I, things went a bit fast for me because once I had a breakthrough with the theory, I couldn't test all the models quite fast. And then that enabled me to sort of complete the PhD. Instead of four years, I finished in three years. So that was the, the plus. Yeah. And then I started looking for opportunities, and then here I am in Flinders <laughs> as my first independent job, and then teaching as well and doing research in job protection. Yeah, that's the journey. But then, I mean, along the way, Hong Kong gave me additional opportunity, which was to sort of, whilst there, I collaborated on a lot of projects that were done by my supervisors. So I worked on projects in Nepal, projects in Cambodia, projects in China, and then in South Korea, all within the area of child welfare and family well-being. So that gave me an additional point. So not only my experience in Ghana, but I had the opportunity to also see how what I was studying in Ghana, what I'm studying my PhD works at another field. And U.S. also gave me an additional platform to see how this research works out in other contexts or in other continents. Yeah, so that's the journey so far. That's amazing. Thanks, man. Thanks for taking us through the different stages. So, yeah, there's yeah. quite a bit of different yeah. opportunities in there. I can mm -hmm. see how you, yeah, are, yeah, yeah. you deliberately pick spots to, to pick up your skills, etc. That's so good. I'd <laughs> yeah. love to hear more about each of them. But recently, you, you've published a, a paper on safeguarding the welfare of children in Ghana. So I wanted to ask mm -hmm. you a little bit about that and you know, if there's any connection to some of those other uh, geographical okay. spaces that you've been in, please draw them out for us. That would be amazing. Okay. Um, okay. So you did a, a semi-structured qualitative interview approach with yeah. focusing on practitioners, I think, mm -hmm. uh, from yeah. three refugee camps in Ghana. So I think you had yeah. about 13 participants. Yeah. And you, you've described a few different uh, styles of research in there mm -hmm. as well. Can you maybe start by telling us why you chose to do a qualitative study in this instance mm -hmm. and you know, why okay. focusing on practitioners? Okay, okay, thank you, interesting. Yeah, so I think the whole idea came from one of my students, whilst I was a teaching assistant, one of my students, who, I think he's the second author on the paper. He did his field placement 
at that agency, at, a, at an agency that works with refugees. And then during his presentation, he then presented this idea, saying, based on my conversation with the practitioners, there appear to be a lot of challenges. And then he gave sort of a snapshot of the challenges. And I said, okay, wow, that's fine. But then we can investigate this sort of properly. Are you interested in sort of being on this? And he said, yes. And then we came together, we formulated the idea, we wrote a proposal and sought ethics approval. And I said, okay, the best people to start with will be the practitioners telling us what they see as the challenges. So ideally, the next phase for this project was to then talk to the camp members, so those within the refugee camps, and then the final stage will be to talk to the community members where the refugee camps are located. So that was the idea we formulated. And I think we are at the second stage now where we are trying to start to talk to the refugees themselves. So the first stage was to look at, talk to the practitioners, what they think are the problems and how we can fix these problems. And then after that, we talked to the, we talked to the camp members, including some of the children, and then we talked to the community. So that we can have three dimensions, I mean, three angles to it, and then we can really propose very solid solution to the UN organization that works with refugees in Ghana because he has connections with them. So we really wanted to make strong impact with this research. So I think the idea intellectually came from him and I supported because I, was also, I saw the research angle to it. And then we came together, we designed the project and then we conducted interviews with those practitioners. That's fantastic. Thank you. So that was yeah. the practitioners the camp members, and I, I can't remember yeah. the third category. Who was the third group you were going to interview? The communities where the camps are located. Gotcha. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Can Can you unpack a bit more? Because that's really interesting that you would speak to those different groups. Yeah, uh, yeah. Why those groups, and perhaps even, again, like why that order? Why would you choose mm -hmm. one order over another? Okay, so I think two things inform that. One is the scientific reason, and the other is the accessibility reason. So it was easy to start with the practitioners because he had connections with them. He has worked with them before. So recruiting the practitioners was a bit easy for the project. And it was considered a good way for us to start with this project. Yeah, so that's the accessibility reason. But then scientific-wise, we also felt where we got the problem from or the idea from was the practitioners. So they told us they think there are problems. And the problems they highlighted to him were practice-oriented problems, right? So, for instance, how we work with these people, language barrier issues, and our skills shortage. So those were the key issues he highlighted from the beginning. I'm like, okay, if they are having problems in terms of meeting their needs due to cultural differences and due to language differences, and they acknowledge that there are a lot of problems, it would be better we speak to them to know these problems. That we can really ground the problems and then now we can extend to talk to those who experience the problems which are the people right but then through the narrative they informed us that developing a community-oriented solution to this will work better than having only they the practitioners working with the community so then the communities will become the last stage because we will draw on them on their strength and resources to solve the problems that's how we sort of conceptualize the idea yep that's fantastic thank you would you, would you expect there to be 
similar sort of findings for each of those groups or are you expecting to find, find like contrasting perspectives as you go through? Yeah, I think they might agree on some point, some of the issues, because some of the issues when they narrate, you could tell, yeah, this is an issue here. For instance, they acknowledge that they've had records of sexual abuse cases within their homes, right? So some of the, some of the people can also tell us that, but the rationale behind it might be different or the reason behind it might be different. For instance, the practitioners were telling us these issues are going on because they can't enforce their laws to work. And when they do that, even where the perpetrators are sort of sanctioned or punished and sent to the police, they, the community, will come together and bail that person out. And they were giving us a reason why the community would do that or the camp members who do that. They might also give us a different reason why they do that. So the reasons might differ, but I think most of the broader issues might cut across. That's really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, one of the things that uh, is a big part of this podcast, but also the topic that I uh, use this podcast for, that this podcast is made for, is thinking about how social problems are represented in social policy and one of the ideas within it is if depending on what knowledge or information or essentially who you ask you get a, a different representation Narrative. of the problem exactly exactly yeah yeah i agree so, yeah so that's fascinating that you've designed this project with that in mind that you said okay exactly. if we want to really understand this problem have to think about how different groups represent it yeah can be language barriers, resource barriers, or you exactly. were talking about legal barriers as well. Exactly. Yes. Yes, legal barriers. Yeah. Were there any other key barriers that have come through so far from the project? I think there were issues with skills as well. So ideally, we had different practitioners working at the agency, uh, working at the agency, and some of them. I mean, in terms of numbers. We can say they are small in size. It's not looking at the number of people within the camps. The practitioners are not adequate to meet their needs. And then the practitioners also acknowledge that they even lack some challenge, uh, some skills in terms of how to even engage their children, how to engage these community members. So some of the practice skills and relationship-based skills are not up to um, the level that we think it should be. And some of them really acknowledge that. And these were even reflected in how the communities also sort of see these practitioners because they can't break that barrier between a professional and an ordinary community member. The community members, sorry, the camp members, the refugees, see those practitioners as outsiders instead of people who are there to help them. Instead, they will see the ordinary community members where the camp is located as people, as, as equal. And then they, they are more comfortable sharing their problems with the community members than the practitioners who are actually trained to help them. And this is happening because the practitioners are maybe finding it difficult to break that barrier, come to the level, understand their needs, and work with them collaboratively. So that's skills-based Problem, shortage your skills based problem was sort of evident within um, um, the narratives. That's really interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. To one of the other parts of, to this, again, podcast and the topic is it's all in, in the name of the podcast is making and breaking social policy. And 
And yeah. part of what we're thinking through in that is the way that we have a social policy or even a social problem that we're trying to fix. And the way that you practice as a social worker can make, in essence, you know, carry out and achieve the policy mm-hmm. or break it and to not exactly. achieve it. And what you're talking about is practice skills, so how yes. that actually... Yes. exactly. Yeah, which is great. And it's interesting to think about it as well, both in terms of the good practice skills can implement the policy how it's intended to, but also in terms of perhaps the way good practice skills might resist or uh, shift bad policy intensive or what we might critique as bad policy. Yeah. And is, is that part of what your the conversations or the narratives that you collect or or is that, you know, in your community way of framing the solution, you know, you're talking about having the community-based solution, is that part of shifting that conversation away from professionals or how does that sit with your research? Yes, yeah, so ideally, I, I mean, this is an interesting angle. Ideally, we sort to, we ideally, I mean, we went to the field thinking the practitioners are the gods, like they are the ones there to help them, right? And they are the ones doing the right thing. So it was a bit shocking to see that even they, the practitioners, acknowledge that they lack certain things. And those have created a different problem. So that's a different angle. So their lack, I mean, their inability to implement what is within the policy, what is within their practice framework, within direct practice with the people, has created a different problem. Right. And that's, I mean, that's the angle you're saying. That it cannot make or it can make or make. It has sort of created a unique dimension to the problem. So some of the issues they were telling us, they could tell you this is happening because data practitioners are not able to. For instance, there was a team saying when the practitioners come there to supply resources to the refugees, they don't use the resources. And then they throw them away. So the practitioners will come around, they will say, oh, we gave you shirt, and the shirt is lying down here. So that means you don't need it. But in actual fact, they need it. And then as part of their conversations, they then realize that it's lack of engagement. So you're providing me with something, and you don't engage me on what I need. You are just providing what you've received from um, um, UNHCR to me. That, okay, this is an aid to refugees, and we are giving it to you. It doesn't satisfy my needs, and that's not what I want. But an ideally, you should expect that our social workers' basic needs assessment should tell you what they need. Right, so those okay. were some of the, the barriers. So they will now tell us, now issue of unmet basic needs is a problem, because even though they have basic needs, we are there to provide them with the resources, but we realize how we engage them before the resources are provided is problematic. Ideally, we should know what will satisfy their needs before we provide. Yeah, okay. So that is another angle in terms of how our inability to sort of practice the ideal principles can also create unique problems. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And it sounds like they're kind of layered problems as well because yes. you're talking about... Uh, engaging properly in order to um, you know, provide the resources that they need. But you, earlier you spoke about uh, the level of trust between professionals and, and community members. And I imagine mm-hmm. that if you don't have the trust, then the engagement no. won't work, the assessment won't work, exactly. and therefore you're not exactly. providing the need. 
Exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think one. So that's maybe one angle we identified was that they had trust with the community members, ordinary community members. So I don't know how. Okay, our refugee camps is much the same to what I saw in the U in Hong Kong. Hong Kong to the camps are more or less located within communities. So in Ghana, the camps are located within communities, and they go around on daily activities with the community members. So what we found was that they were really they found the community members as identical people. They think we are the same people, and they could disclose their issues, their problems. To the community members better compared to the practitioners they are working with. So that's the trust. At least they have someone they trust. So if we sort of build on that, then we can sort of incorporate the model where we will have these community members practicing as part of us, so that we can bridge these trust issues and start off again. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's really challenging to. Think about what the the role of a social worker is, or what the um how to engage people in practice. Uh, and sorry, rather in you know achieving a child protection outcome that isn't that is community led. I suppose yeah. is yeah. community engagement. It's a different yeah. kind of model, I think, to to at least what we have in Australia. You started describing some of the parallels to uh, to mm-hmm. Hong Kong. Are are there yeah. parts and pieces that we can learn from? this context like seems quite different to Australia, right? Mm-hmm. Refugee camps in Ghana seem like a, a different context to what we're working in child protection in mm-hmm. Australia. But are there things that we can learn? Are there things that we can carry across? Yeah, I think there are similarities. I mean, especially with some of the issues that came up, there are similar. For instance, you're more likely to get language problems here among refugees. And I think it's quite common. Um, my conversation with some of the DCP staff early on I mean, reveal to me that they use interpreters at some point. So at least there is language issue cutting across. And Ghana probably will be worse in terms of the language issue because we are the only Anglophone country founded by, I mean, yeah, bounded, if I should put that, use that word, by uh, uh, Francophone countries. So countries we share border with, all of them are Francophone countries. And they are the ones that come into Ghana to seek safety. And Ghana has had like stable democracy for close to 30 years. And there's been problems, instability, political issues in all these neighboring countries. Currently, there's a problem in Burkina Faso. There's a problem in La Côte d'Ivoire. And there's been problems in Togo. So these are Francophone countries. And then the first point when this war starts is Ghana. So the language issue is probably much bigger in Ghana compared to Australia. But then that said, the issue of language is something that can be said to be um, um, across everywhere. And I also think issue of, um, I mean, engagement at the individual level is also an issue I can say is global within child protection practice, right? How do we get people to trust us? How do we get them to tell us the problems and how best we can sort of um, satisfy their needs, right? Yeah, but then, one thing I also think can, can be relevant really in Australia is the issue of developing a model where you work with not only the individual, but you work with the individual's community, especially when you're working with refugees. Right? 
So these are people with unique problems. And then they're feeling, they're having that sense of belonging. And that, that sense of community support is important for them. It's important for their settlement and it's important for their integration, right? So I think in terms of child protection issues with refugees, it might be important to go beyond the family and also include some of the communities where they belong and then try to engage at least one or two of these community leaders and see how they can participate, they can contribute to support with your initiatives. So I think for me, getting the community members involved can be using them as paraprofessionals, giving them what the, the little ways they can support with your professional guidance. And then that way, the person will feel belonged, the community, he will feel the community supporting him, and then you are also delivering your responsibilities professionally and through these sort of community connections. So I think that also is something that is um, um, relevant within Australia. And I also think the legal issues are quite important, especially I found something interesting when the, they said the refugees feel that prosecuting someone who has abused someone sexually is more or less an act of discrimination. That's weird, right? That's weird. So they feel, oh, we are not part of them, and as such, this has happened, and they feel they have to sort of send that person to police. No, but that's, we have to sort of make sure we enforce the laws, irrespective of the notions behind it. So I think that's, if this is set loose, then sexual abuse will sort of continue. And for us to break that, we should still enforce the legal rules, enforce the laws, and make sure those who violate um, uh, laws are punished. So those broader issues, I think they uh, they cut across. Yeah, what else? Yeah, I think that's, yeah, just, yeah. That's great, multicultural, multicultural training, very important. Multicultural training, very important. Yeah, so I think it's key in Australia, specifically. I feel Australia should be a beacon when it comes to multicultural frameworks for practice. You, uh, I decided to do a sample two weeks ago. So I decided to count four people that I'll meet on the way, and I'll ask each of them, where are you coming from? Right. So I did that, and first one of them, was a Polish, second Italian, third was from Tanzania, and the fourth was British. Where did you meet these people? Just at, at the university I was around? Going to, so I had a, a field training here, not even in the university, in the community here. Right. So I had okay. a field training. I had a, I mean, we have a field where I go for football training. So on my way, I said, okay, today I'll not take a car, I'll walk. But then I'll talk to four people. I just wanted to see how diverse Australia is. There's a small sample bias, but it confirmed my notion that, look, this is really a strong multicultural society. So I think multicultural training, which came up from the finance, is key in Australia so that we can really be able to meet people with diverse needs, diverse cultural interpretations, some that are even contradictory to us, but then it's important we understand and how we can practice these within this context professionally. Yes, yeah, so I think that also really cut across. Yeah. That's fantastic, man. Thank you so much. I mean, just okay. listening to you talk about it, it just reminds me the complexity of the issue and that there's just so many facets to it. And and that's a really important message for um the the topic again in this podcast is that we've got to think about these 
social issues, like the multi-layered social issues that <laughs> that surround the the individual, and not just think about bad people who do bad thing and the individual no. who you know, abuses somebody. You know, think about the range of social forces in there, and you know, whether there's a legal issue or whether yes. there's a multicultural issue or <laughs> whether there's um, you know the uh, more practice-based kind of issues that you're describing. These are all yeah. different representations or parts of exactly. the problem, and, and your your research really highlights that. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank you so much for unpacking that, and also just drawing the connections across to Australia as well. It's, it's really yeah. interesting to go. Okay, yeah. let's step outside of the assumptions in our cultural yeah. context, and and because there's so much of our Australian um, child protection system, and whenever it gets often, when it gets kind of media attention, there is mm-hmm. an emphasis on that kind of real tertiary level intervention uh, kind of system. So how do we intervene in a moment of crisis and you know um, <laughs> have a removal of a child, et cetera? But what you're describing is, again, broader systemic kind of context. Mm-hmm. Let's think yes. about how we get community involved, how do we yes. get people genuinely um, you know, uh, supporting and participating in each other's lives? How do we promote more cultural society? These are much yeah. bigger, bigger questions to to ask, and it's I think something that you know often we kind of do lip service to these things in our policies, mm-hmm. but it, it comes down to often what a individual social worker will yeah, practice at the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. That's great. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. And like, there's lots of your research, which I would love to ask you more and more about. I think we could chat, no, chat for a long time. Sure. But is there anything sure. else that you're doing at the moment, yeah. maybe uh, yeah, other than your little walk down the street, which is quite a cool little data collection exercise that you want to <laughs> tell people about? Is there anything that you, you know, you're really interested in, you're working on that people would should check out? Yeah, I think so. Um, currently doing a study on multicultural uh, child protection. So I think I spoke with one member from the multicultural team in South Australia, which I think is good. Um, so far, based on my communication with people from other states, South Australia appears to have a very strong child protection, I mean, multicultural team. That's strong, but small, but it's okay. At least something to start. Yes. So I feel that's a, a big strength. And I really am looking into the kind of frameworks they use in practice. So it's not just about this person is from this background and then we have to give him an interpretation. I'm sorry, an interpreter. No. Um, a multicultural practice really goes beyond that. So um, I think with Carmela, we are setting up a study to look into this and how we can maybe come out with a very basic and a working framework that can guide them in practice within the multicultural multicultural team and yeah we're doing that and i hope it's it sort of generates something really interesting yeah nice that does sound really interesting okay so if people wanted to find out more about that or your other work where do they find you they find you somewhere on the internet yeah Yeah. (laughs) i think for now i think those projects i mean we'll come with the publications but then uh at this stage where i am Ethics approval, but then after ethics, we will start to provide more updates in terms of trying to recruit people. So aside, we'll really be interested in people who have had contacts with the child protection team. And then we have interviews and then we'll try sending the findings across through personal website, 
Twitter, <laughs> which is sort of my go-to area, ResearchGate, and all my full name, Alhassan Abdullah, ResearchGate, Twitter, and then LinkedIn as well. Yeah, and then maybe the investing platform as well. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. If you're happy, I'll put a couple of links on the, uh, the yeah, yeah, show notes, and then people can find yeah. your, your Twitter handle, your LinkedIn, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be great. And thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And if anyone sort of is interested in working alongside, I mean, I'm happy to talk. So good. Thanks, mate. Look, really yeah, appreciate your time you and so. insights. I'm, I'm sure we'll yeah, come back thank to you so more another time. Sure, sure, sure. Thank you. This episode was edited by Ryan Manhire, music by Anthem of Rain, sourced from the freemusicarchive.org. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter, at Ben. If you like the podcast, please like, share, comment, and do all the things. <laughs>